This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the Wharton Sports Business Summit at the University of Pennsylvania, a full day of keynotes, panels, workshops, and research presentations looking at the economics of the sports industry. This is a Business Radio special presentation. Here's your host, Eric Bradlow. Welcome to the Wharton Sports Business Summit, brought to you by SiriusXM Business Radio Channel 132. I'm Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School. For those of you that are regular listeners, I'm also the co-host of Wharton Moneyball here on SiriusXM 132. I'll be hosting the first hour of this show uh, of a special two-hour program before handing it over to my colleague and co-host on Wharton Moneyball, Cade Massey. Over the next two hours, we're going to be talking with leaders from the world of sports, including my first guest, Jeff Luno, from the Houston Astros. We'll be talking to people from the New York Yankees, Fox Networks, NFL, Major League Baseball, and more. It is now my honor to welcome our first guest, Jeff Luno. Jeff, for those of you that don't know, it'd be hard to not to know, given his prominence in the world of sports and analytics now, is the general manager and president of baseball operations. And I must admit, I have to say it, for the 2017 winning <laughs> World Series Houston Astros. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure to be on this program, and it's really fun to be back here on campus. Yeah, as we just discussed beforehand, it really will be the first question I'll ask you. Um, turns out we were both here as undergrads at the same time. You were an M&T student, which means, for those of the people that don't know, that means Jeff has an undergraduate degree both from the engineering school and from the Wharton School. Um, talk to us about your business background and how, in some sense, that's influenced your career. Well, baseball is a business, and I think it wasn't really until the late 90s, 2000 era that owners began to recognize that the people making the big decisions on the baseball side were actually making business decisions, but using baseball information to do it. And I think that was the beginning of the Moneyball era and the beginning of people coming into baseball that had different set of experiences. You know, I played junior varsity baseball in high school. That was as far as my playing career went. I did play fantasy baseball for about 10 to 15 years and was pretty good at it uh, and was always interested in the industry, but I didn't think there'd be a chance for me to get in. But my business background, having gone to Wharton, having spent time in other industries, really was attractive to the owner of the St. Louis Cardinals when he brought me in because he was looking for just a different way of thinking about problem solving on the baseball side, and that's how I got my start. Now, what's interesting that you brought up is that you started on the baseball side. So could you talk to our listeners here about... Obviously, the way most people think about analytics in baseball right now is on the baseball side. So why don't we talk about that first? Right. And then, as you know, it's now, I don't even call it bleeding over because it would yeah. disrespect it. It's now a huge part on the ticket sales no side, and et cetera. So let's start with the, the baseball side. How did you get started in that? Like, how did you go from, we just discussed, you were a mechanical engineer yeah. in finance. How do you go from that to doing analytics in baseball? I think it's the uh, foresight of Bill DeWitt Jr., the owner of the Cardinals, in 2003, he recognized, uh, he read the book Moneyball like we all did, and said, hey, if the Oakland A's are able to gain an advantage by looking at information a different way, uh, my front office doesn't have those capabilities. Because like so many front offices, it was traditional baseball people that had grown up in the game, had coached, had managed, had uh, been in scouts, etc. And all of a sudden, um, this new capability was starting to emerge. So for me, having a technology background, Having done a couple of startups, having been a management consultant for six years, those were things that were attractive to Bill DeWitt because he knew I would be able to think about solving problems in a unique and different way. And that's, that's why I got my start. And I can tell you today, there's a lot of people uh, behind me that, that look, look a lot like me in terms of diverse backgrounds. So let's talk about that, because we're here today at the Wharton School at a sports business summit. I see all of our wonderful students dressed up in suits, not their normal dress, but yeah. I see that today. Um, <laughs> What kind of backgrounds are you seeing people coming into, let's say, whether it's at Houston Astros, et cetera, looking for sports? I can imagine someone that's proficient statistics might right. help. Yeah. Computer science might help. But I'm sure it must be a diverse set of backgrounds. What would you even recommend, someone that wants to follow your path? What should they study? It's a good question. I get it all the time. And I think you should study something that if you don't end up getting a job in baseball or sports, you can still have a successful career. So anything on the analytics side, computer, modeling, statistics, math, uh, but even economics, business. We have uh, a few people in our front office that are essentially just generalists. They're really smart people that have a business background, but we have a lot more, and this is increasing, people with very specific skills, whether it's machine learning or 
robotics or physics. There's very specific skills that we're looking for these days because we have a strategy on how we're going to develop our technology and our analytics. And generally speaking, we go deep, so we need people with specific skills. How big an organization, I mean, without giving away any secret sauce or the payroll of the right. Houston Astros on this, how big an analytics group is there? Because I remember in the old days it used to be, well, well there'd be two or three people doing it. I imagine yeah. I'm going to be able to multiply this by at least ten. But yeah. how big are we talking about here? So when I got to the Cardinals, I hired one person full-time. And then this was 2004 or five. And then I remember when I was getting ready to hire my second person, I had a hard time justifying that it was a, a full-time job. Maybe it needed to be a part-time job because I, I thought we needed to build a model. But after we built it, it would be done and, and I wouldn't have enough work for them to do. Uh, I'd say right now the Cardinals probably have 13 to 14 full-time analysts, technology people. Uh, the Astros have something around 15, 16, 17. Most clubs have over 10. Some have over 20. So the, the number has grown exponentially. Of We call them analysts, but there are lots of different people from different walks of life. And this is not only happening on the uh, analyst side, but also the medical, sports medicine side. Um, we now have uh, a lot of people involved with different backgrounds on the sports medicine side, uh, psychology, et cetera. So there's a lot of need for different disciplines in baseball today. So let me cycle through from someone that doesn't work full-time in baseball, but has been, there's probably been, well, maybe beyond you, more, more of a baseball junkie than me. Ever since I was a kid, I followed everything having to do with baseball analytics. So which, let me cycle through some parts of the baseball business, and you tell me sure. maybe how analytics has had an impact. Right. Why don't we start with the basic part, training. How, does the, how do the Houston Astros use data and analytics to help uh, athletes just perform better and get better strength right. training, better health, less likely to be injured? How right. do you, let's just start with that. Well, first, we recognized years back that there's a huge connection between physical capabilities and the skills needed for baseball. And in the past, there was a little bit of a wall between the skill coaches and the strength and conditioning and the trainers. But we've broken those walls down, and now we work collaboratively across all those areas because if you're trying to get a guy to change his swing and you tell him what he needs to do to change it, he may not be physically able to do it because he needs to do something different in his training. And so now we have all of our strength and conditioning coaches know what skills our players are trying to work on, and they work collaboratively with the skill coaches to try and figure out how to do it. And that's been a huge change, not only for us, but for everybody in the industry. Now, let me, I, I'm going to ask you a question. It's going to seem strange, but there's a purpose. Before you were the president of baseball operations, how did you make that integration happen? Was it through the sheer will of your knowledge? Was right. it through just your, so, your soft EQ skills to convince people? Now, you, I hate to say it, you can just order people. Like, right. you guys will integrate. <laughs> but how did you do it prior to that? Well, when I was in St. Louis, uh, everything had to be done using influence because I wasn't in charge of all the multiple departments. So, but, but people do respond when you have compelling arguments and you show them evidence and you try things out. So St. Louis made great strides. Once I got to Houston, it was different because I was in charge and I got to hire the people and shape the departments. But it, we really we sit down every summer in August and we go through what is the world going to look like five years from now across every area of baseball. And then we think to ourselves, where are we and how are we positioned today? And do we need to restructure? Do we need to add people? Do we need to change job roles? We've done that every year for the past three years, four years really, and every summer we make some sort of changes to prepare for the future. And it could be structural, it could be people, it could be bigger investments in technology, et cetera. But it all starts with the planning part of it. So we've talked about training. Let's talk about the next part, player development. So how do you guys broadly use analytics to try to get the most out of players? Like even whether it's from the minor leagues, uh, you know, whether it's A ball, double A, triple A, or even in the major leagues, how do you use it for player development? Today, we have so much interesting technology that we can identify what a pitch, how a pitch will perform in the, in the major leagues or how a particular swing will perform in the major leagues. So we can now benchmark our 16-year-old Dominican players and our 18-year-old high school drafted players and our 22-year-old college players with their, what they're doing compared to how well that skill is likely to play in the big leagues. So for every player, we have a plan. And here's what you need to do. Here's the third pitch you need to develop. Here's what you need to do to your fastball shape in order for it to be more successful. So they have very particular goals. And then the question is, how do you work on those goals? And you have to get constant feedback. And it's not just about playing games. It's also about their side sessions, uh, throwing in front of the machines, taking swings in front of the cameras, and constantly refining. But the, the good thing is with all the technology, we have metrics for everything. 
and there are goals for every player. And if they accomplish those goals, they're going to be good big league players. Is there, has there been any challenge in getting buy-in from the players about this? A ton, a ton. And over time, it's dissipated in large part because so many of our players now go to these great college programs and they're using the technology there, so they're used to it. Um, in fact, for a while, the challenge we had was that the players were ahead of the coaches. We were trying to get the coaches to use and think about the technology and the analytics, and the players were a receptive audience, but the coaches were sort of blocking some of that. That's changed now, uh, but there is uh, a challenge because nobody likes to do things differently than the way they've always done them. And if you grew up and the shortstop was always to your right, if you're a right-handed pitcher behind you, and all of a sudden the ball goes through there and it, it's a hit, you're going you're gonna to glare at somebody, uh, even though the one that got hit right behind you gets picked up that used to be a single. So um, change is difficult, but I think it's now become the new norm in baseball that every year there's going to be some new things. Like this year, the opener that Tampa started and everybody started to copy, and I have a feeling it's here to stay, and there's going to be certain clubs that are going to be using that going forward. We talked about that strategy on Wharton Moneyball quite a bit. So let me now, let's move to something you actually have just led into, which is the on-field. You were obviously talking about the shift. But can you talk about what you think both on-field and during the game analytics has had the biggest impact on? It's always had an impact. And even if you go back to the Branch Rickey days, you know, when to hit and run, when to steal, uh, all, all the, you know, when to bring the infield in, um, and in the last few years, how to position the infielders and now the outfielders. And I think, you know, we're all playing the probabilities. You look at a particular hitter and how he tends to put the ball in play, and you want to position your defense to grab it. Um, you also look at the, the game state. If you have a, a runner at first with no out versus a runner at second with one out, which is a better chance for you to score runs in that inning and how important is that run to win the game. And so there's a lot of nuance that goes into it. But those rules of thumb if, that we like to call them about when the manager should do certain things, um, those have been pretty well developed really since the 50s and 60s. They've changed a little bit because the run environment's changed and the stadiums have changed. And uh, But generally speaking, they're there now. Some managers use it, some managers don't, and uh, in, in some cases there's good reasons why they don't. They know that a particular player isn't feeling great or their hamstrick's hurting and they're not going to be able to be as fast. They know the catcher's not throwing as well, uh, different things like that. And, and we give our manager all the leeway to make those decisions, but we, want, we make sure that he has the information, he knows the probabilities. It's kind of like playing blackjack. If you, if you don't know the perfect odds strategy, you're going to make mistakes, and that's what we try and avoid. So you've actually talked about the next part I was going to ask you about. Do you actually, and I don't mean this in a negative way, I mean in a constructive way, do you score your managers? We've talked a lot on Wharton Moneyball, like what makes a good manager and how much value does the manager have? Yeah. Do you actually go back you know, like when you're in the off season, and say, here's a game where you did three things that didn't follow exactly what the probabilities are? There may have been a good reason. Right. Do you actually score your coaches and managers? We do, but we have to recognize that the in-game tactical decisions are one component of many components of a successful manager and so you have to put it in context um, also you have to realize that the, the absolutely the worst time to go down and talk to your manager about an in-game decision is right after the game so really uh, for us we look at it on a monthly basis and we dialogue with our manager and he's very open-minded he wants to learn so we you know we talked to him about these there were five situations this year where you went again you know last month where you went against the odds um, and he has always a reason, and he tells us. And sometimes we have to take that reason and try and bake it back into the models to, to improve it. Sometimes he just made a judgment call, and it either worked or it didn't. But we have that conversation, and it's really healthy for both sides. Actually, your last point is one I was going to ask you about, too, so it's another interesting one. Models currently always have to be updated. Right. How, do, how does the human side add to your models? Like, yeah. how, like if a manager sees something, you know, we talk about these as combining managerial data with the hard data. Right. How do you guys think about that? Right. Well, you try and figure out, is it real, first of all, um, or are they double-counting something that's already in the model? And if it is real and the model hasn't captured it, you try and figure out. So he may say the guy didn't feel well. So that, that's more, more of a health issue. How do you model in how good the guy is feeling in terms of how quickly, how, how much he's going to be able to steal that base, for example? And there are ways to try and do that systematically and, and bake it in there. Um, but it's, it's part art, part science. It's never going to get to the point where you, you, you look at the model and you just follow it blindly because there, there are factors that we're never going to be able to, to, to bake in there. That being said, we don't stop trying to improve the models every single year. And the way you do that is you work collaboratively with the decision makers and you try and get them to articulate as best they can 
why they deviated, and, and then talk about whether or not that's a variable that you can start to model. So I'm Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing statistics here at the Wharton School, as well as host of Wharton Moneyball on Wednesday mornings here on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. This is a Business Radio special presentation from the Wharton Sports Business Summit, and we're currently talking with Jeff Luno, general manager and president of baseball operations for the Houston Astros. I'm going to ask you what I think is both a naive, but a, I hope a sophisticated question at the same time. Is there... Could I be a manager right now and sit in the dugout with a laptop? Am I, al- first, am I allowed to have a laptop there? And if not, do you ever see a day where there is? You're allowed to have an iPad, and you can load it up before the game with whatever you want. But during the game, you cannot be going to the Internet or looking at live video or updating it. So our iPads for our manager and our coaches have a lot of information in there, and there's a lot of scenarios where they can look at and, and get some guidance. So that, that exists. Whether or not it'll be real-time down the road, I don't know. This whole notion of sign-stealing and trying to gain an edge and, and video in the stadium and all of that, um, you know, we're trying to... Uh, technology's sort of getting out in front, um, and there's always going to be ways to take advantage of technology to make real-time decisions, and I think MLB's trying to limit that um, so that it's a level playing field. So I, I only have time for one more question, but it's how do you reflect back on the 2018 season meaning you won over 100 games. Right. By everybody's measure, that's a successful season. Yeah. It was the second most in baseball, I believe, after the Red Sox. A little more, a few more than my Yankees. Yeah. But, it, you, you, but, of course, you know, the Red Sox beat us. They beat, when I say us, the Yankees, right. they beat the Astros. Right. How do you think about the season, and then how do you think about using what you've learned for 2019? Well, first, I think we had a better team in 2018 than we had in 2017. And all so. the advanced sabermetrics right. suggest that as well. And we were favored to win the World Series from the very beginning. And, and I think even now we're favored to win next year. So uh, on paper, we had a great team. But when, once you get to the postseason, anything can happen. A lot of things do happen. Um, evidence of how we were sort of operating on fumes at the end. Within 12 hours of us being eliminated, Jose Altuve was having surgery. Uh, Carlos Correa was shut down. Lance McCullers, we, found, you know, we, we, we now know he was pitching through a, an elbow injury, and he had Tommy John. So our guys were giving it their best effort. We were doing everything we could. We left it all out there. We had some bad calls go against us and some bad luck. But you know, at the end of the day, credit goes to the Ross and Red Sox. They steamroll through the playoffs. They deserve the championship, and I hope that's us next year. Well, Jeff, thank you very much for joining us. This was Jeff Luno. Uh, Jeff is general manager and president of baseball operations for the, I'll say, 2017, as much as it pains me, 2017 world champion Houston Astros. Thank you for joining us here on our business radio special. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. All right, we're very happy to welcome our next guest, Stu Siegel. Uh, Stu is CEO of Hockey Tech, uh, a big, uh, if you like, hockey analytics firm. He's also, Stu also served as chief executive officer and co-managing partner for the Florida Panthers. Uh, during from 2008 to 2012. Uh, so, Stu, welcome to our show. Thank you, Eric. Pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great to be here. Well, I always like to start the same question with everybody. Like, how did you get to be? How did you get to hockey tech? How did you get involved in the analytics business? Kind of, what was your path getting there? Well, I took an interesting path. I have a career. I'm, I'm so, first of all, I'm so happy to be back here at Wharton. I uh, graduated in 1985 here. And oh, well, I'm, a ninth, I'm a 1988 alum, so it's good to welcome oh, a fellow okay. so alum. So you're a young, a youngster. I guess so. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I spent a career in technology, data, analytics, uh, nothing to do with hockey, although hockey was always a passion. I played here at Penn when I attended and uh, been a lifelong hockey player, still play. So, in, so let's uh, imagine I'm a, I'm a huge fan of hockey, but I never played the sport. I, I, I'm a professor of statistics, so I think I know a little bit. How much... Does your background in hockey help you with hockey analytics? Or could you just hire, you know, why not hire a statistician, some physicist, some machine learning person and come in there? I don't need to know anything about hockey. How false is that? I think there's definitely both sides of it. So I'm not saying that if someone doesn't understand the hockey world that you uh, can't participate in it, but certainly there are different talents that uh, play into what you could do. I think uh, having an understanding of what goes on in the locker room, um, you know, certainly has helped me in what I've, what I've done. Uh, I can go back to uh, I sold a technology business in 2007, uh, got connected um, with the thought of I wanted to get into NHL team ownership. So I kind of jumped from uh, not being in hockey world to being at the pinnacle of it in NHL team ownership, uh, joined into a, uh, an operating group that already existed with the Florida Panthers where I was living down in Florida and um, had the opportunity to get involved at the top right away. Um, as opposed to some of the other owners in the group, I really wanted to participate. Uh, so I was actually there every day, 
being involved in the day-to-day operation. So what operation. influence did you have with the Florida Panthers? Were you able to bring your technology and analytics background to the Panthers at all? And if so, how, how did you do it? Well, for sure. I came in originally as a minority partner and uh, was a little limited in what could do and, and so forth. But within a year, I ended up becoming the CEO and managing partner. Um, now I'm sitting there with the general manager. This is the ultimate in fantasy sports, right? <laughs> You're suddenly there at the top of the game, sitting with the general manager and starting to ask, well, how do we make these decisions on players? And he'd go, well, what do you mean? You know, we, we have scouts out there who are looking at the players. And by the way, we have the worst scouting staff in the, in the league because we don't spend money on it. And I'm like, well, we need to correct that. So, um, you know, how do you decide who are you going to pay $5 million to, who are you going to pay $600,000 to, who are you going to send up, send down? There really was not much in the analytics uh, department of the Florida Panthers when I came in. I don't think in really any of the NHL teams at that time in, in 2009 we're talking about. Uh, so we where, yeah, where do you up. start? What, what did you do? Well, the first thing I did is we said, you know, we need to get better. Number one, you know, we're dealing in a, a cap and floor environment at the time, and we were not a wealthy team. So I said, we're going to play closer to the floor than the cap, so we need to develop our own players. So we uh, went right into uh, the 2009 draft, which is my first draft. Uh, that was in CEO. And uh, we went in. Uh, I gave instructions to the GM or we sat down and came up with a strategy that we were going to uh, trade as many assets as we could for draft picks, and we beefed up. We actually went into that draft, and we ended up with five of the top 40 picks in the draft, and we restocked our uh, system. And then, uh, we, and then we said, well, it's not enough to just restock. You know, in, in hockey, you're dealing with 18-year-old draft, and a lot of these players have a development cycle until they can come in. So we needed to invest some money into um, – both our scouting and our development system. And, um, you know, I would say that it worked. I mean, I didn't have time. I wasn't there long enough to complete it because we ended up selling the team. But um, if you look at the Panthers now, they've been a competitive team, you know, been in the playoffs, uh, I wouldn't say consistently, but right on the fringe of competitive, whereas opposed they used to, I mean, I came in lucky too. We had a lot of first, second, third picks in the draft to work with uh, to restock that as well. But it wasn't just those. It was the having three picks in the first round that 2019, uh, two picks in the second round, you know, that really stocked up the team. And we went on that strategy uh, of we were going to build with the draft. Let me remind our audience that I'm Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing statistics here at the Wharton School, as well as host of Wharton Moneyball on Wednesday mornings here on Sirius XM Business Radio 132, powered by the Wharton School. This is a business radio special presentation from the Wharton Sports Business Summit, and we're currently talking to Stu Siegel, CEO of Hockey Tech. How did you move from being the CEO and managing partner of an NHL team, which, as you said, would be most people's lifelong dream? Mm-hmm. The team gets sold. How do you go from there to Hockey Tech? How, how does that work? I mean, it's obviously, maybe it's a business. Did you start the business? What is Hockey Tech, and what do you do now? Well, it's uh, funny because I came out and felt I hadn't completed the job and bringing analytics to the Panthers. Uh, we started at, like uh, just looking at different thing, ways that we can aggregate data a little better. Uh, found a few little technology companies out there doing little things that could help us that we engaged at the Panthers. Uh, when we sold the Panthers, um, I said, that would be a fun thing for me. I mean, I'm lucky in my life. I'm at a point where I can do fun things and choose what I want to do. Uh, so I said, had this idea. You know, there are a few companies I knew out there. You can be a professor. You can do that for your whole life. <laughs> you just get to choose, you know. You teach some of the time. You do research. But you just work on things you enjoy. Sounds like a good idea. Maybe, <laughs> I'll, maybe I'll come back. That's your next career. The, um, so there were a few little companies out there. I started talking to the people that we had, I had been exposed to at the Panthers. And I said, you know, would you be interested in being acquired? I started acquiring a few companies and integrating them together. The first company was a company called ISS, International Scouting Services probably the leading independent scouting service. Probably not so much for the NHL teams because they have their own scouting systems, but for uh, the leagues kind of under that. Um, Then there was a company called RinkNet, which basically had the scouting software system. So putting those two together was kind of the genesis of creating Hockey Tech. Tell us about Hockey Tech. What do you guys do? What's your, who's your target segment? What's your focus? How does technology and analytics play a role in what Hockey Tech does? So we're really focused on uh, providing technology and data solutions to the what I would call the elite hockey world. So we're not dealing with the recreational end of it much, uh, primarily you know, working with um, aggregating data and managing data and then distributing that data. So uh, to give you an idea of the services we have, we have a service that uh, is used by all 31 NHL teams for their scouting system. Uh, so every NHL scout uses our system. 
if you're scouting some 16-year-old kid in Siberia, Russia, um, you know, is there's a, a scout data, out is there. Is it a data entry platform to start with? Like, you know, I'm sitting, I make it up. I've got an iPad. I've got a hockey tap app on my iPad. I'm starting to collect data, and I can kind of score people. So w- what is the actual technology? So that's part of the technology, but the baseline is that we provide all the inf- baseline information for the scout to succeed. So people don't think about simple things like schedules and when games are, where they are, how to get there. Um, player rosters, the statistics of those players, and then uh, supplementing with our own scouting that we've done within our own ISS organization, as I said, to have that baseline information. And then the scout being prepared when they show up there, even the assignments from the team to their, you know, some teams have 100 scouts out there all over the world assigning which games they should go to and who they need to look at having that information. So you're a logistics company as well. Very Besides much. just a data company, you're also a logistics company. So then, then that scout's out there, and after they make their player evaluations, they're going to put that information into, uh, into our system, and uh, that'll feed back into the organization. And, again, it's a, a process system, so different organizations process different ways. Some allow, for instance, other scouts to see other scouts' scouting reports. Some don't. You know, so... Uh, all that goes in, and all that, of course, is the proprietary side of the information. So we're proud to say, I'm always proud that we have the most proprietary of information for all 31 NHL teams in our cloud system, uh, and they tr- entrust us to keep that uh, information private. Can you give us a sense of the kind of data that co- that uh, teams are collecting or scouts are reporting on? Because, you know, let's imagine, like, it, you know, let, you could imagine from the simplest, which is, I eyeball this player, that, that player's an eight, that player's a four, that player's a two. But, of course, there's multi-dimensions of skills, there's how to rate mm. them. So what is the kind of data that actually goes into Hockey Tech system? Like, what are the metrics, what are the dimensions in which you measure people? How is that done? So we've kept it very uh, customizable for the teams. Each general manager and uh, system has their own, um, has their own uh, metrics that they want to look at and train their scouts. But, of course, each scout has a different way they look at people, so kind of aggregating that. I'd say the biggest thing that's interesting because uh, the hockey, well, when you're looking at the draft, I mean, they use our system not only for the draft but for trades and their own player evaluations are all in our system. Um, but uh, when you're looking at 16-, 17-year-old kids, the big thing that's talked about in the world of hockey is how they're going to project into an NHL player five years from now. So, you know, I use the example that we often get criticized that there's a kid who scored 60 goals in the junior league. How come he's not the top-ranked kid? And you're ranking that kid that scored 20 goals higher than him. And it's, you know, it's how we project that person's going to succeed in the NHL just because the kid scored 60 goals and may never, ever play in the NHL, just may not have the skills. So just as a last question, so you're a Wharton alum, I'm a Wharton alum. I'm going to invite you back. Let's imagine it's 10 years from now and we're both sitting here in the same chairs and we're talking about the state of analytics in hockey. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about? What, what's the future horizon of the, the new frontiers, the new data sets, the new analysis methods, the new real-time stuff? What, what should we look for as both me, a hockey fan, but also an analytics fan? I think the main thing is going to be data. NHL real, uh, hockey world lags behind in data. Even the NHL is the only big league that doesn't have tracking at this point. Um, I think they're going to solve that solution. A lot of that's been an issue with the, uh, with the players' union and what they could do, a lot of jockeying for position on the next CBA. Um, I think the uh, video technology is going to get to a point soon where that tracking can be done by video rather than putting tags on the players. Uh, once that is available... And that and artificial can... intelligence combined. Correct. And then we'll be able to take that technology down. It'll be inexpensive enough and easy enough to use to bring down to the other leagues, which... It's funny if people say the NHL is the only league that actually compiles time on ice, which is a simple stat, you'd think. So in hockey, where this changes on the fly, it's more difficult to compile that. So even knowing who's on the ice at any specific time when an event happens um, is just very difficult to tracking events. There are so many things that happen. Uh, with the new technology, which I think is probably four or five years away from really being live and effective, uh, then we'll be able to uh, track everything that happens on the ice and it may be information overload but guys like you will figure out how to do something with it and that's my job well well, (laughs) Stu, first of all welcome back to the wharton school uh thank you for joining us we've been talking to Stu siegel ceo of hockey tech this is a business radio special presentation from the floor of the wharton sports business summit i'm eric bradlow professor of marketing and statistics here at the wharton school we have two great guests joining us over the next half hour of the program um, the first of whom I'm happy to welcome to the show, Bruce Lefkowitz, Executive Vice President at Fox Networks. 
Uh, Bruce is doing lots of things now. He's responsible for all national revenue for Fox Broadcasting, Fox Sports, FX, FXX, National Geographic Channel, etc. But of course, as Bruce and I were talking off air, that's not the way I know you. Um, I'm a 1988 graduate of the Wharton School. Uh, Bruce is a 1987 graduate of Penn. And I was thanking you for all of the basketball memories. So welcome back. Bruce played the time while I was here as a student. So thank you for being here today. Oh, it's an honor to be a Wharton. I never thought I'd make it to Wharton. So coming back here is great. And, you know, the Penn memories have been terrific. Could you talk about your background and kind of how your role and how you kind of navigated to be involved in Fox and, you know, being in such a senior role? Sure. I mean, I was really lucky in that uh, it all sort of ties back to the basketball decision to come to Penn. I was communications major in Annenberg, and I knew that I wanted to do something in the media business, the television business. I think back then it probably felt, hey, I'm going to go to the NBA, then I'll be an announcer one day. But I fast realized I had a face for radio, and that wasn't going to work. Um, but I was really, really lucky to get summer internships um, from Penn alum, a guy by the name of Joe Cohen, who was the president of Madison Square Garden Network, is sort of my rabbi in the business. And 35 years later, still exceptionally close to him. And I worked for him for two summers at Madison Square Garden Network. And then uh, later on, subsequently to Sports Illustrated, where I not only had a great summer internship, but I met my wife for 30 plus years. So that was sort of a springboard into the media sales business. I didn't really know much about sales. um, And I was lucky enough to get into a training program at Turner Broadcasting. And that sort of launched me, uh, you know, on my career at, at some great companies and great people at Turner and Discovery and now Fox. How have, you seen, how have you seen media change over time? Like, how is it different from when you were an intern to now 30 years later? You know, it's fascinating uh, to see, you know, the effect of technology that technology has had on the media business and on content and distribution. You know, I feel like the old guy talking about when I started in cable at Turner, it was in 50% of the homes. And you would go to talk to advertisers and the perception would be they're in this 50%, but not in that. And we'd have to educate them. No, there are 10 houses on the street and five have it and five don't. Certainly, this generation has not only grown up with cable being ubiquitous, but now with all the OTT and all the other alternative technologies to consume content, that's created a golden age in content creation. And it's really put a premium on the value of content, be it sports or be it entertainment programming. So you're in charge of both the sports side, but also the entertainment side. How is that different? Is there anything different or content is content, viewers are viewers? How do you view it differently or maybe you don't? Well, I think it's evolved over the years. Um, Obviously, content is key. And, you know, people say, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm an eyeball salesman. You know, the eyeball's connected to your brain. Your brain's connected to your hand. Your hand reaches into your pocket, pulls your wallet out, and you buy stuff. So if we can prove that, and now, again, going back to the effect of technology, there's more and more data, and certainly with your background in marketing and statistics, you know, the data app opportunities now to validate media decisions have never been larger. You know, again, with the Philadelphia roots, you look at uh, John Wanamaker. I know that 50% of my advertising works. I just don't know which half. So that now is a reality, and advertisers are using data to inform their decisions on whether it's entertainment programming or sports or news or whatever um, to really connect with their best prospects. So the other connection I want to make to Philadelphia, obviously Comcast is located. Comcast NBC Universal is here. Um, One of the things when they moved to their Xfinity platform, I know, is that it allowed more two-way communication. So in other words, they have a better sense of now what people are watching, which of course means advertisers can know this, which means they can do targeted advertising. How do you guys at Fox think about that as well? What kind of data do you have that just wasn't available before? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're still in the early days of Everyone you is. Know, data capture and using that. But, you know, if you think about it, that the for many years the advertising uh, business used proxies. So trying to reach men 18 to 49. Well, if you're Ford and I just bought a car and I'm 28 years old, me seeing that commercial is sort of a waste. So what these tools now are getting us closer to is being able to filter those audiences and have advertisers pay for the audience they want. You know, there's a lot to be said for the idea of, I'll pay you more if you can deliver my best prospects. And I think that's really, in the next five to seven years, that's where you're going to see the greatest advantage. There's, there's certainly now a lot of fragmentation. There are a lot of people in that data capture business and selling it. At some point, it'll aggregate and it'll be scalable. Do you ever see a time where um, I go to someone at Google and I say, who's your biggest competitor for targeted advertising? They say, oh, it's Fox because Fox has a massive viewership. They can do targeted advertising. Ours is based on search. 
Theirs is based on viewing. Viewing is maybe closer to purchasing than search. Do you ever see a day where that happens? Well, you know, the funny thing is that there's certainly uh, the, the Fang folks. There's a bit of arrogance. I don't think they ever look at us as a competitor. And, and you know, hats off to them uh, for how that business is, has grown. And they've grown it by being able particularly with search, uh, to target in and have people pay for the audience with less waste. And again, there is a scale at Google or, or YouTube. Um, now, what's the quality of scale and what's the environment? Um, you know, those are questions too. And where are my ads running? I think there's always going to be a, um, an important place in the media landscape for premium content and the association with premium content, be it sports or, or high-quality entertainment. Could you talk about how you use, whether it's your pen knowledge and background, like how do you guys, I know you said it's the eyeball test, but how do you come up with new programs? Is there a science behind new programming? I like to think there is. I'd like to wake up every morning as a marketing professor, think there's a science behind creating good ads, a science behind creating good shows. How do you guys think about that at Fox? You know, it's interesting, uh, having watched the evolution of the programming side, particularly at Fox, I was, for most of my career, on the cable side, FX. And it all starts with an idea of serving an audience uh, that, that is being underserved. And FX's idea was we wanted to be HBO for basic cable. So we want to give you the highest quality television that you don't have to pay extra for. And that was sort of a guiding philosophy in programming. And then the lens that each show is evaluated on, everyone is different based on the demographics and things like that. So sophistication it certainly we've gotten more sophisticated in you know getting more insights from consumers about what they want and testing shows and all but a lot of it i have to tell you is a gut you know it's someone's creative gut you know who thought that a a reality show about singing stars you know was ever going to become american idol or a show like empire you know so some of it is gut and people having to have the conviction behind that I'm Eric Bradlow, professor of both marketing and statistics here at Wharton School, as well as the host of Wharton Moneyball that we host on every Wednesday mornings, 8 to 10 a.m. live here on Sirius XM 132. This is a business radio special presentation from the Wharton Sport Business Summit, and we're currently talking with Bruce Lefkowitz, executive vice president of Fox Networks. So, Bruce, let me ask you, um, how is sports different in the sense that um, the one thing, maybe you're different than me in this way, I can't watch tape sports. Yep. I can watch it, but I have to know the outcome first. It's just the one thing. I just can't do it. I know for a fact someone else knows the outcome, and therefore I can't watch it. So do you guys think about live sports different than the other type of content that you create and display? Sure. I think, I think your timing, when you see what's going on in the industry right now, particularly with the Disney-Fox um, uh, transaction that's going on, really speaks to two different strategies, both of which I think are going to be enormously successful. You know, Fox, in divesting itself of a lot of its entertainment programming and platforming, is making a large bet on live programming, whether it's sports, which will be about 70% of the portfolio, or some of the reality programming and stuff, and Fox News, which will stay in the portfolio. Again, you're not DVRing the news. You know, you're not DVRing Hannity or whoever the Fox News people are. On the flip side... Really, entertainment programming has been become an on-demand initiative. You don't have to watch Empire at nine o'clock on Tuesday if you're out at your kid's ball game or if you're, you know, uh, at a concert or something. And I think that that's part of the bet that Disney's making with their upcoming OTT products and all is the fact that if you have quality content, real premium content, people will pay for it. It opens up that direct-to-consumer relationship. So I think that those two elements, sports and entertainment programming, you know, really are important um, to different segments of the audience. I've always wanted to ask someone in your position this. Do you care on what platform somebody watches? Do you care whether I'm watching on my phone, whether I'm sitting at my laptop, desktop, whether I'm watching on a, my 75-inch TV at home? It doesn't matter to Fox? Any, any view is the same? To some degree, as long as it's measurable. And some of the problems, the inherent problems that the business is still catching up with technologically is I don't have the same ability to measure your viewing on all of those platforms that you talked about. You know, VOD, we can now capture information, but I can't get demographic information. So when I'm selling an 18 to 40 demographic, it's harder to do that. Um, so as technology catches up, ultimately we're platform agnostic because again, it's how many eyeballs can I sell to those advertisers and the right and the right eyeballs, and then you know secondarily, it's you have to be able to measure them. 
Do you think there'll be a? Do you think though advertisers note that, for example, maybe someone watching on their phone is just not as valuable an impression? If we think of gross rating points, there's just not as much value of an impression on a phone as there is on a big TV. Do you think that level of sophistication is coming? Or right now, views are views. If they can be measured and they can know it's towards a given target segment, a views a view. That's all. I mean, we definitely look at all of those things because, again, we're trying to prove the value of that. So, you know, I might be able to find that on a mobile platform, people are spending more time. They're more engaged. They're watching the ad to completion. VOD, again, I bring that up. That's a great example because VOD is now fast forward, is fast forward disabled. So as an advertiser, if I want to watch Empire or the Mayans on FX, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning, the price for that convenience is watching the commercial to completion. So there are, there are different areas, and we look at all of it. So we're sitting here at a student event, obviously lots of great young students. I'm sure many look at you and um, say, I'd love to have your career path and job. What do you recommend that students should study? What are the things that will help them? And a related question to that is, who sits next to you at your table? Do you have a bunch of data scientists around you? Do you have a bunch of marketing people around you? Kind of who helps advise you on kind of the decisions you make? Two, two things on that. I'll, I'll get to the second one. The first, I think, with, with kids today um, is really all about creativity and differentiating yourselves um, from the other candidates that are out there. I mean, again, you know, particularly in the marketing side of the world as opposed to the Wharton, the business, the finance, the investment banking, the lawyers, it really is a different business. And you have to, you can't be afraid of taking chances of, you know, if you don't swing the bat, you can't get a hit. And, you know, I, I use examples that, you know, things that they wouldn't tell you at Wharton Career Planning and Placement, they would never tell you to put your resume on a light blue piece of paper. I'm making that up. You know, it's got to be single space, dear Mr. Lefkowitz. However, I'm getting a thousand dear Mr. Lefkowitz as I'm writing to inquire about on one. So how do you stand out? How do you get someone to read to the bottom of the page? So the thing that I talk about most with it, and again, it's, it's easier in a marketing sales environment, um, is differentiate yourself. Be creative. So if we're sitting here five years from now, what's changed in your job? Like what, what's the big new advances that are happening over the next five years? Data technology and the direct-to-consumer relationships and how we maintain uh, the commerce, the advertiser-commerce relationship in a changing landscape. You know, if more and more people, you know, look at the success of Netflix. Many will tell you that it's a better viewing environment because there are no commercials. So... If that's what people are willing to pay for, how do advertisers reach the masses if people are avoiding commercials? So I think that's the biggest challenge that, that we're facing as a business of how you can still impact and deliver audiences. Well, Bruce, of course, I want to thank you for joining us here in our Wharton Sports Business Summit special. But I, I have to say it on the air since this may be my only opportunity. Thank you for all the basketball memories. Um, it was really great being a Penn student watching you play at the Palestra, and I'm glad you were able to take those opportunities and build a great career now at FX. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Eric. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Um, we're next really happy to have joining us uh, Melanie Legrand. Melanie is Vice President for Social Responsibility at Major League Baseball. So, Melanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I would never have imagined, and being so fortunate, that I would be sitting here and that Major League Baseball would have a vice president of social responsibility, which I think is so important. Can you tell our listeners here on our sports business show, what is that? Like, what do you do? Well, it, it's a great job, first of all, and I, I'm really happy to be at Major League Baseball. But really, my role is to integrate social and charitable considerations into everything that we do. So it ranges from our community relations and uh, the work that we do in our philanthropy and, and spending money for impactful causes, uh, but also supporting our employee engagement and our volunteer initiatives. But you may get something from consumer products or from sponsorship, and they have a question, and this sponsor wants to do this, or, or this particular ballpark has this uh, banner in the back of the, you know, uh, uh, you know in the outfield. So... Every day is a wonderful day with questions and, you know, a lot of answers to make sure that we're being a responsible corporate citizen. This is an interesting question. So how does, I mean, I'm going to ask you something about business school professor. How does Major League Baseball trade off the dollar signs for the social responsibility aspects? Like, for example, um, just as it's not in Major League Baseball, but like there's a golf event happening in Saudi Arabia lately and Tiger Woods, many others have refused, tennis players have refused to play but I'm sure they're being offered large amounts of money. 
how does Major League Baseball trade off and say, you know, why don't we just sell this spot to the highest bidder? Who cares who puts it there? How do you think about that trade off? Because it's a business, but you need to be socially responsible. That's true. But being socially responsible also incorporates the business objectives. And I think that, you know, as the industry has evolved, as the field of CSR has evolved, it's not about the let's do well, it's let's let's give back. It's really about running your business in a way that considers the triple bottom line. So not just your profits, but the people, the people that work for you, the people that are surrounding you, the people that make up your community, but also the planet, you know, and sustainability initiatives that were, were needed as well. How do you measure, how does Major League Baseball measure the ROI of your job? Like, in other words, all of us have metrics. Like, in my case, how many papers do I write? How many students do I teach? What are my teaching ratings? How do you score somebody that's in a social responsibility role? And how does Major League Baseball do it? And how do you think about it? Well, I think for community and philanthropy, you know, typically there's there's a model that you look at and you look at your, your inputs and, and what comes out. And so you can look at your outputs, which are your numbers. The OKR, Reviving Baseball and Inner Cities program, serve 200,000 kids a year. That's your outputs. But then you go deeper and you look at your outcomes. Okay, what is happening in the kids' lives that are changing, right? And then you look even deeper and you look at the impact. Is there a systemic change? And so, you know, for us, we can measure our community and philanthropy in those ways and the outputs, the outcomes, and the impact. But we also think about our business objectives. You know, it's really societal, societal impact, but also our business objectives. So that, when you think about CSR, is reputation-based. So advancing our reputation, thinking about the sponsors that come in because they want to do great things with us. You know, we have particular sponsors that start out wanting to sponsor one thing and they realize we're working in a different space in the community and they say, well, actually, we don't want to just put our dollars towards this for-profit kind of marketing aspect, but we want to put our dollars towards field innovations and, and sending out a grant application so that five fields across the country can get $50,000 worth of goods and services that impact the lives of the children in that space. But that's good from us, for us, for a community standpoint and the kids but also good for a business standpoint because we want to grow our game and get kids playing our sport. So you actually talked about something I just wanted to ask about next. So, you know, there's the if you look at the raw data, the aggregated data, baseball maybe is not quite as popular as it used to be. So I, can't, I would imagine that what you're doing in your job is crucial to the future of baseball. You talked about whether it's building baseball fields. Well, in one sense, of course, it's a good thing to do, but it has to have a long-run effect. How do you think about that and the role that you play, in some sense, sustaining the future of baseball? Well, it's, it's interesting. It's a great question. And really, like I mentioned earlier, my job is to integrate these considerations into everything. So we have a social responsibility working group at Major League Baseball that brings in 10 people from different business units that some of their work affects our CSR and affects, you know, this is stakeholders that do the work. So I work hand-in-hand with our baseball and softball development group. And so while I may say, okay, let's invest, you know, a million dollars into Boys and Girls Clubs of America, then I sit down with our baseball and softball development group to say, okay, we we have 4 million youth that are in the BGCA, you know, the affiliates across the country. How can they play our sport? And we talk about ways to, to support those affiliates in getting kids to play our sports. So whether that's through equipment donations, whether that's through baseball fields, you know, whether that's through grants to different clubs across the country to, to start baseball programs where they had none. So, you know, it, it's really a, a, an affair of people coming together and making the right decisions so that our game is sustained. I could imagine, again, uh, let me just remind our audience that I'm Eric Bradlow, professor of both marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, as well as host of Wharton Moneyball on Wednesday mornings here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. And I'm currently talking with Melian Legrand, vice president of social responsibility at Major League Baseball. Um, I could imagine you and I could list on a thousand pieces of paper all of the different things you could do. How do you decide and prioritize the things that you do? You talk about giving grants away, building baseball fields, giving away equipment. I mean, I could in five minutes I could probably fill up ten sheets of paper with all the things Major League Baseball could do. How do you think about it? Well, you know, it, it is a decision that we make based on our business objectives and also our, again, societal objectives and the outcomes and the, output, you know, the impact that we want to make on the society. But, you know, the, the question is, is, you know, it, how do we decide? Um, I know the reasons why I say no to people. 
because I know the reasons I say yes. And so let me give you an example. That would be great. (laughs) We support and have supported Stand Up to Cancer for 10 years. We're a founding sponsor. We've helped them raise $43 million for innovative cancer research. Thank you. Uh, Well, you know, it, it affects everybody. It affects all of us. And so when I get a call from someone... You know, talking about colon cancer or this kind of cancer or, you know, uh, you know, all types of cancers, I can say I'm not able to say to the clubs, do an, a day that supports this type of cancer. I mean, there's so many different types of diseases under the, the cancer, you know, umbrella. But I can say we're supporting Stand Up to Cancer that has 23 dream teams that are focused on individual cancers. So the money that I raise for them, the money that I give to them, is really being led by a, a team of experts who know where to put the money into. So they can say, you know what, our dream team is going to focus on fighting breast cancer, but because of the research that we've done through that particular fight, oh, we found that we can use this type of uh, you know, FDA-approved all those pieces to, to support ovarian cancer. So I want to support someone that is um, doing great things in the world, but can also allow me to say to others, but this is where I'm putting my investment. I, I don't want to go peanut butter thin. I want to make sure that we are going very deep so that we have greater impact in particular focus areas. What would be the one thing that would surprise our listeners here on Sirius XM 132 that Major League Baseball is doing? What's the one thing that you would say, yeah, I would have never guessed that this is part of our corporate social responsibility. I think that uh, I'm a military child. My father retired from Thank the U.S. Thank you for Army. that as well. Yeah, my, yeah. My, my dad, too, served <laughs> in the Army twice. Yeah, I was born in Germany. So, uh, so he, you know, he served for 22 years, and so I'm very passionate about the work that we do in the military. And now, more than ever, people have a farther connection to military. There's less people serving. There's not as, there's not as many folks that know people serving. And so what they see is maybe in a ballpark, on a football field, and we all stand and we all do these things. And they see, oh, this person returned from Afghanistan. But one of the things that we do is we recognize that there's really three pillars around supporting the military. It's not just mental health and awareness, right? I mean, we saw what just happened in, in Thousand Oaks, which is very sad. And my wife told me some statistic I just heard, something like 20 people from ex-military people um, either commit suicide every day. And it's I mean, it's, true. A, it's, it's a shocking statistic. It's true, but what people don't realize is that that's not post-9-11 veterans, right? And I think that's what people don't realize. And so, you know, the other pillars that we support in military, which I'm not sure folks know about, is transition services and assistance. The number of people who are separating from the military, who are going into civilian life and trying to get, you know, entrepreneurial careers going and just new education feeds for themselves, that's where the work is being done. And, you know, we're about to announce some grants on Monday that we're working in that space. And, and actually, our employees are going to be starting a mentoring program with folks who are separating from the military. So I, I think that's something that most folks may not know because what they see on a baseball field or on a football field or on a soccer pitch when people are, oh, this person just came back. and Oh, let's salute our veterans. There's so much more going on in the military space that I just don't think people are aware of. Well, Melanie, first of all, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for everything you do. Um, I have the... I cannot disconnect in my own mind Major League Baseball from all the good things that it does. So thank, thank you. you for what you do. So th- you. that was Melanie Legrand, Vice President of Social Responsibility at Major League Baseball. This is a business radio special presentation from the four of the Wharton Sports Business Summit. I'm Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School. I will be turning it over to my colleague and co-host, Cade Massey, for the next hour. Come back and join us after the break. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.